Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. This podcast is dedicated to issue six of the magazine, which just came out a few weeks ago at the Breaking the Barrier show put on by Powerbomb TV. To talk about his article in the magazine and a host of other things is Steve Dr. Lucia Sims. We're going to talk about his article on the Brazos and how that relates to the current events in wrestling in Mexico right now. Uh, we're also going to talk about Matt's article about Gino Hernandez. Matt, unfortunately, could not be on the show today, so we're talking about it in his absence. Some other stuff, some wide ramblings uh, about all things from wrestling on TV in the 80s to college basketball to the Dodgers to the Heat in Las Vegas where Steve lives. If you want more information you can go to the website uh, uk for more information. The print edition is $5. The digital edition is $3. It's the same price for issue 5 which came out a couple years ago and has interviews with a bunch of luchadors including Ray Hechicero and the new CMLL heavyweight champion, Marco Corleone. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Warner Palace. If you did not know... We have a new issue of the magazine out, uh, Odessa Steps issue 6, which debuted a couple weeks ago at the Breaking the Barrier show put on by Powerbomb TV. To talk about the article that he wrote for the magazine, uh, some of the other stuff that's in there, plus what's going on in Lucha, uh, and I guess we should maybe start with uh, what's hotter, Steve, Corey Bellinger or the weather where you live in Las Vegas? Well, after t- for the day that we're taping this and stuff, Ballinger's been on another one of the little streets. So he's he's doing very well. He is uh, he he and Aaron Judge are probably going to have the uh, anniversary show main event at CMLL with baseball bats allowed. You know how Paco is on foreign objects in CMLL. Well, it's not, say- but Vegas has, Vegas has been ridiculous. It's it's nine straight days over 110. I was going to say, I'm sure baseball is booking those, was hoping to book those two in the main event in the home run contest coming up. Yeah, yeah. well, they, they would like, I'm sure they would. Yeah, it's all about ratings. I have frequently sa- said that of all the p- things I've ever subscribed to by email in my life, from, from Target to Walmart to my work to magazines to whatever, nobody asks me for money more often and ask for more money than Major League Baseball in their mark in their email marketing arm. They do want the money. Well, yeah, it's not like you know, it's not like they need it. It's not like BAM is a license to print money in and of itself. <laughs> I mean, it's well. I think it's funny that BAM BAM is so good at what they do that you know they run the NHL's digital stuff for them. So. Mm-hmm. It's like when you, I mean, how often do you see one professional sports league sort of farm out a part of their business to another league? Yeah, you don't. But then again, it's, it's, they are all apparently, I don't think this is such a big deal. And we're not going to spend the valuable podcast time going over this, I'm sure. But I really don't think that this so-called problem with millennials 
is a so-called marketing problem at all. Do you, uh, in what, do you think it's just yeah, as well, the evolution? We can, of... we, I mean, we can do that on another podcast or, or another show or whatever like that. I know we want to go over the topic and stuff like that, but at the, from the Las Vegas, the two Las Vegas 51 games that I have gone to with their fine souvenir stand being down for one of the two games without explanation um, to, to, you know, to major league games, I see it's, it's still fine. I mean, baseball is still drawing, it's still drawing numbers. It's still getting people there. It's, it's, the they're they're in it lost in the Dodgers market at least they're pricing themselves out of the family market because they just keep raising ticket and parking prices every year by another ten percent to where it now costs a Hispanic family of four two hundred dollars to take the husband wife and two kids to a game and that's just it's just, just that's too much. Um, and before before we move off of Vegas, uh, do you see yourself going to see the Knights play? You know, hockey in the desert is a great thing. They they might actually sell more of it if they play during the summer when it's 110 degrees than in the winter. I suspect that the first – it depends on how well they sell it here. I suspect during the first year it's going to be fine, and then I suspect it's going to fade. I don't suspect – I don't see uh, from, you know, just from now having living here for, lived here for a few months – I don't see the generic interest lighting up on it. The Raiders is a different story. People are already talking voluntarily at the water cooler about the Raiders, but I don't see that with the NHL. Yeah, I think I think the NHL inadvertently is going to be harmed. I mean, they did not know the Raiders were going to be coming, or they, you know, they didn't expect it. To no, be. no, no, they didn't. No, no, I didn't. Nobody expected this to actually happen. I thought this was this was a, a ploy to get a new stadium in Oakland. That's all we ever thought. But yeah, it will it will be interesting. Um, yeah, so we have a new issue of the magazine out. Um, I'm Which sure I'm holding in my hands. It is a, it is a marvelous issue, guys. The uh, which people probably have already heard me give the spiel in the open, so I won't do it again. But yeah. uh, you wrote sort of, I guess, the main article this time around, probably by by page number, which was. Oh. I do have the centerfold this, this time. The um, you wrote about Fam- families in lucha, yeah, yes, yeah, family... Los Brazos. Well, I was going to say certainly, you know, wrestling is all about families, and as we, and I guess that could be for good and for bad, since we have long since seen people pushed who may not deserve it because of family members. We've seen, you know, people on the outs oh, because God. they weren't we could do a whole show. We could do a whole show just on that. Well, it's that, it's that bad. Well, if people, if people think, you know, George Goulas and Greg Gagne and Jeff Jarrett are, you know, like the worst examples in American wrestling, then, it's sort of magnified even more in Lucha just because you have so many more family members. It's like how many how many Alvarados have there been? I mean, it's is it I know it's double digits. It's probably close to close oh, yeah. to 20. It, it is. There's there's Shadito Cruz and then the the six sons and then when you fan out for the sons of the sons and the daughters of the sons 
and the Canelo Casas, and I don't know if we're going to go into to, to you know daughter TV commentators or not, but it, it's probably right about twenty now over the whole family, and that's not including marriages. If you want to also include marriages, you know, Negro Casas's wife wrestles, and and um, Maximo's wife wrestles, and stuff like that. And you can I I forget who it is, but. In in lucha business, if you want to define a family as just a consanguineal, just by blood, you've got one set of giant lucha families wrestling. But then when you start to take, you know, a big families that have intermarried, uh, which is where I was going with that last sentence, it's like it's crazy. It's crazy. The numbers are just nuts, and and you almost get to the point that we will raise in a few minutes about a mafia. Well, that's what I was well, going to say. Nostra, Lucha. The, I mean, realistically, sort of the big news in Lucha from the last, you know, probably month by now. And I don't know if I don't know if we've talked about it yet, but you have the whole like uh, Maximo La Mascara, Ultimo Guerrero car thing, which all stems from uh, El Brazo pet. Orazo de Oro passing away, him being head of the union, and the family thinking they would get, they would inherit the position of running the union when mm-hmm. Ultimo Guerrero says he didn't want it, but just questioned some of the ways that the Alvarados ran the union, ends up with his car destroyed on video, and two of their biggest stars being fired. And well, you 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 covered the summary pretty well. And it's funny that and the funny thing is, too, that Porky Porky is still in the company. It's like they didn't fire Porky. He had you know, he had nothing to do with it. And they didn't fire Robin, who there's a well, there is a technicality that to that for Porky. Porky is the only one left in Lucha Libre market still has is not actually he is signed with any promotion. He has one of the old 80s-style independent contractor contracts, which is hard to explain in Mexico because a lot of the guys don't have any contracts at all and stuff like that. But he is still what they, what Ernesto Acampo refers to in the business as one of Los Independientes, one of the independents. He's actually he's working for CMLL the past few years just because he wants to work for one stable company. But he, there's a technicality to his employment status. He didn't have the same sort of deal that La Mascara and, and Maximo had. But then again, he was not present at any crime that was committed, and they got rid of people that were present at, at, at a crime being committed. But you could see him, even though he wasn't part of it, that that he would leave. Oh yeah, this is this is yeah yeah this is something that he would have. If he could have been there, he would have been there. Yes. But the thing is that you could also see if they fire his son and his nephew that he would quit out of solidarity. But he you know he you know they've been paying his medical bills, so you know I'm sure given his poor health he does not want to. You know, as we certainly know in the news, and as you certainly know, you don't really want to voluntarily give up your your health insurance or cross the people who are paying yeah. your health insurance. No, no, not in this country, not in that country. Absolutely, that's 
sometimes you just have to grin your teeth and take it like like a lot of people do in American jobs and stuff like that because you've got the benefits and you don't want to lose them and stuff like that. And this could be one of those situations for sure. He does. Robin, I, there was a, there is an undercard CML wrestler called Robin, who apparently was not. I originally thought that he was, but apparently was not present during when the car was damaged. So Super Porky and one of his uh, nephews are still with CMLL. Whether and, Porky wrestles again, of course, is dependent on the doctor, not on CMLL. I I for years campaigned on saying that CMLL was at fault for booking him. And so I'm sure it had nothing to do with me, but eventually somebody else came to the same conclusion that I did, and they just won't book him until he's healthier. And it's the the funny thing that stemmed out of this incident is that I think we all thought that they would probably, that Maximo and LaMosker would end up in AAA, especially since they had a TV taping like the very next week. But instead, they've gone sort of the independent route, and you know they're now sort of their own little independent faction, quasi, quasi Ingo Bernabalus, But of course, they can't really call themselves that since CML owns that gimmick. But you know they've. It seems like they're probably going to be successful for a while without needing to go to the to the crap storm that it, is AAA. It, it it does doesn't doesn't they? Can I step back for just one second? Yeah. Um. When when Brasso de Oro passed away, he was the head of the wrestlers union that represented just CMLL guys. Um. That was in the in like a uh, I don't know I think it was like a Friday because La Mascara had actually go out and wrestle. His son had to go out and wrestle that night. And then about a week later, Paco apparently. Um, either took the guys out to dinner or had a dinner or had a, a, a late dinner type meeting with the Brazos families. And Ultimo Guerrero was there because he's just, he's it, almost as much as part of the front office as, he, as a part of the wrestling crew. And La Mascara expressed the belief that he felt that, and, and this is public information that he felt that, that the, that with his father passing away, that, he should be the next one in line to be the head of the union. And Paco, who gets to name that, then then went off on and said whatever he said, and Ultima Guerrero said what he said. But that's not an unusual thought for La Mascara to have. In Mexico, if you and your father work for the same company or in the same business, it's not unusual to expect um, within that culture that you would take over the responsibilities of your father. I'm, I'm not saying there's right, wrong, or anything. This I'm just kind of expressing like a cultural norm that's, that's very common there. That what La Mascara said would be exactly what I would have expected him to say, because that is the way um, fathers and sons and family members who work for a business look at things. So I just wanted to add that point. Right, and apparently it's not like Ultimo campaigned for the job. I mean, he said. He really didn't want it, and apparently Paco wanted to appoint Ultimo Guerrero, and then you know at least, at least for now you know Nitro, who was the second in command, is running it for now. Mm-hmm. But it's it's funny that you know Guerrero ended up with his heat when you know apparently it wasn't really even his idea, and 
it was something he didn't want, and then everything blew up from there. It it is as I understand it. As I understand it, at the meeting, he said, "I don't want this. I think the job itself, which a lot of people think this is, is a no win job. You only make enemies. You don't make friends, and that structurally, it's not a very sound thing." And then apparently the next thing he said is, and I don't think it's been run very well, and I don't think the person that ran it was running it very honestly, and I don't think that people have been paid correctly for, you know, they, they I think they hold 3% of the, the, the gate back away from the wrestlers and away from Paco to get to this union and stuff. And he, he went on and said things, and the rest of the things, I, I haven't, it hasn't been intimated to me what he said, but it was... As much, I think, a description of I don't want the job because I have seen how the job has been operated, and I think it's 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 not a, a worthy job because the last guy screwed it up. And realistically, you know, Ultimo Guerrero seems to have more than enough pull as it is already. It's not like he really needs the headache of being head of the union. Yeah, I mean, he's already, you know, like the number one Rudo. And it would be a headache. Oh, yeah, it would be a headache, yeah. You know, he's the number one Rudo in the company, you know, although he's certainly, I get he's probably also the most popular Rudo, I would imagine. And, you know, I mean, we often joke, you know, whenever there's a tournament, it's like, has Guerrero won this before or when was the last time he won it as to whether or not he's going to win it again? So, you know, I'm sure, yeah. He certainly didn't didn't need the headache, but like we said, those guys have ended up becoming very successful on the indies so far. And I think, you know, it in a way, you know, the uh, their their leaving has has elevated a couple people who, you know, might very you know, on the overall scheme of things, might be better for the company. I think. You know, Soberano moving up the card, I think, is a good thing based on the way he's performed this year. And I think Marco... I think I think he's going to be a huge star in five years. He's going to be a big star in, in the next five years. And he's just going to be like a main event, the main event Technico. And, you know, putting the heavyweight belt on Marco, I think, is really smart because... You know, with their growing number of tourists, if they get into the Arena Mexico, you know, that's, it, you know, when Marco gets easy pops, generally speaking, from the female part of the crowd anyway, I think, you know, him also now being heavyweight champion for the tourist crowd who doesn't really understand that belts don't really mean a whole lot in CMLL, but they see, you know, the big looking American guy with being quote unquote world champion, that's probably, you know, doesn't hurt either. I, I agree. And, you know, I agree. I, 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 I would like to ask you though, what do you think of the fact that a, nobody has been arrested for that, at least for this car incident. And that B, that the Maximo and Mascara on the independent circuit are trying to use a name that's so close to those in that I would think that a trademark judge would say that's trademark infringement. I don't. I mean, I think we we've been told. I think that Guerrero pressed charges or did what he needed to do on his end. So, I mean, I don't. 
you know, part of me just wants to immediately just say, you know, it's Mexico, and not be surprised at things not happening. But it could just it's it's hard to think that a crime that was committed and captured on film and publicly available on film and the victim has said they're going to press charges why something hasn't been done makes it the answer seems to be somebody doesn't want it going forward yet or yet publicly but that's you know certainly with no actual knowledge of the situation Yes. Well, one name that we haven't mentioned, speaking of the Brazos family, is Porky. Super Porky has a son called Psycho Clown, who was also part of the violence against the car. In fact, the first video that surfaced, there have now been at least two. I don't know if if there's been others, but at least two. In the first one, Psycho Clown is the one that does most of the uh, for the length of the video, at least, does most of the actual um, damaging um, ca- cause of damage to the car. And you would think that if there were, if Ultimo Guerrero were to either press charges or file a, suit, a lawsuit or whatever, that it would be that one person that he would name primarily first. And I, I'm almost beginning to wonder if somebody says, jail him if you want, but wait till after August the 26th, because there's a million and a half dollars riding on him being free and available till August 26th. Yeah. There's, there's, there's that whole other part to it's like, yeah, it's like triple A. Is he triple A's number one baby? I guess he, is he like the number one baby face since he's in the main event? He is. He is until from now till August 26th. He is. So, and you have him being in the video unmasked, you know, so triple A's, you know, hasn't brought this up because they don't want, yeah, you don't want to say yeah, it's people... a no-win no situation for them. They can't. They can't even mention it. And then you and like we were talking about relations, is it's like, you know, do the Casas say, you know, can you wait? You know, like I don't want my, you know, can Negro Casas say, you know, I don't, I don't want my son-in-law going to jail right now. And yeah, yeah, yeah. If we can hold it off for a month, or whatever, until this is, because it's funny that you know we all thought that Maximo and Lamasker were going to go to AAA because it seemed it was tailor made for an angle for them to come in and team with Psycho Clown because you know part of that whole storyline there was that people kept turning on them, and it's like, hey, look, two of my relatives are now suddenly free to come work for this company and it would it was like the most lo- it was so logical a storyline it makes it all seem like this is a work but obviously it's not a work for one thing the two companies aren't going to work together and you know it really happened but it all sounds like a work when you explain it well it and of course I have to be I have to step back a little bit of this because I was raised on dusty roads in southern wrestling and that that was that's the first twenty five years of my life. So to me, it's exactly the sort of angle I saw growing up. So I, I, it's just conditioned for me to look at it and say angle when it even when it really isn't like in this case. So I, I it's just it just you know it just rings all the bells in my memory from oh yeah I've seen this before. But the other and thing is and and is nobody gets arrested and nobody gets punished and nothing ever seems to happen about it. You keep thinking. Well, this is how a wrestling angle would work out. They're doing, we're going to say, 
No lawsuits, no police, let's settle it in the ring. The other part of that, about not going after the Ingo Bernavo's name, is the other person we really haven't mentioned so far, and that's Rush, speaking of wrestling families, mm-hmm. that, you know, you still have the C- the the Ingo Bernavos and CMLL, even though we're theoretically down to just Rush and Piroff. You know, we're down to Rush. <laughs> right, and I think I saw today, I think on the on the CML show Sunday, I think they were teaming with Cranio. So just imagine Cranio and Mihey as as Ingo Bernablas, at least for a day. That's that's funny. Yes, that means you've 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 run out of you you have nobody else left to add to it. Well, my, I mean, my impression is that 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 gimmick, CMLL is going to try and save the gimmick by making the number two guy in it, Pierre Roth, more valuable by having win another mid Carter's hair in Vangelis in a few weeks. I don't think that's going to work, but they think it's going to work. And sometimes, like if you could tell with their Dos Landis attendance this year, sometimes they know more about business than I do. It strikes me as this gimmick is kind of dead in CMLL, but they're going to try and they're going to try. Well, oddly, I mean, this would make no logical sense, but you know, it seems like, and we're talking about families, it's like the best way to sort of make them a viable faction is to have them all be, have all the Munoz brothers be in the stable so you would have Rush, Dragon Lee, and Mystico all as one team. But then you've got two of your most important baby faces teaming with your number, you know, your like number two Rudo and their dad who most people can't stand. So it's, you know, but, you know, it's like they book, you know, they book Incredible matches so often that, you know, you could really, God knows you could have them team for months and just say it's because, you know, even though, you know, they, 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 they could st- try, it strikes me that that's not, then it's no longer Ingo Bernabalis, it's like Familia Munoz or what their Familia de, de, de Tala or whatever they want to do with it, but. I mean, Sombra is gone and Mosker is gone, and I have seen over the years from, you know, from stable after stable after stable that once the original guys get big, trying to replace them is is like replicant fade. It's just over time you get you get a, a lesser copy and a lesser copy and a lesser copy. It's it's really better to move on, and yet promotion after promotion still in 2017 does doesn't learn that. It's funny that CMLL could very well at this point make more money off the Ingo Bernabas in in New Japan than they do off the Ingo Bernabas in CMLL. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the truth, if that's the case now. I mean, really, but you know, and, but it know, is family. There are. You know, back back to the, back to the magazine. There's just families everywhere in Lucha, and here we're talking. We've gone from the Brazos, which are, you know have have had their dominion over CMLL and before that EWA for years, and now here's the Munoz is trying to take care of of um, 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 you know the, their family as a group. Everybody but, but Paco Alonso seems to think that the best com- combination you can do with the Munoz family is put them all together. 
Then you've got Ultimo Guerrero, who treats his entire stable as if it's his family, from from Angel de Oro and Niebla Roja on, all the way up to Soberano and, and Euphoria. I mean, the people that are in his clip are are like are very much akin to one big 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 family. And we saw last year, you know, when we kept seeing Vol, you know, I mean, how long, how how long past the sell by date were they booking Super Parka? You know, whether or not <laughs> okay, it was after the after the first first minute of the first batch, it was his sell by date was gone. Well, his movement I, date was gone. But I'm I mean, you know, they at least got a use out of him to build up a feud, you know, where he lost his held hair to Casas, which yeah. looked like it was going to segue into, you know, like a Volador Casas feud, and obviously that's gonna be great in theory, and then that sort of just and that and was going to I remember correctly, you can correct me on this or not, but if I remember correctly, Volador was trying to hint that LA Park might be right around the corner to have his back. Yeah, he they teased a surprise, which, you know... I mean, who, who else could it, could it be? I mean, it could be Eo de la Par- L.A. Park, but I don't think Paco wants anything to do with the kid. No, and I don't, you know, and it certainly wasn't just going to be Flyer, you know. No, it wasn't be Flyer either. But, you know, that's another case where, you know, they used Parka for a Super Parka, for quite a while when you're just like, you know, and now, and again, again, you can't help but talk about this. And now you have all of the Dinamitas, you know, who all look really good, except unfortunately, you know, because it's CMLL, you need to stick, you need to stick the uncle in, in these matches where he is woefully out of his league. But, you know, it's, it's like, CML just like won't book the the next generation of guys. It's like they need the older guy with them as an anchor or to get the rub or whatever. It's like you know these these young Dinamitas all seem really good, and you know him, you know Mascara taking a place in six, you know taking a, the place of one of them in a six man is is pretty wasteful. It is waste. It is wasteful, and I wouldn't do it. I understand if, if they were to tell me they're doing it so he can take all the losses, so the kids don't have to just have loss after loss after loss on their schedule, so that fans in Mexico don't learn them as you know mid card losing matches. I could understand that, but I do, uh, I actually don't think that's what Pac was thinking. I think he's he's very close friends with with the Dinamita brothers, particularly the middle one, Mascara, and. If if he can find a place for him, he'll use him. I mean, he's Paco has his own. That's why I would so much like to interview him. He has his own way of just coming out of left field on and, and making it very interesting decisions that it's very hard to analyze. You can take three or four stabs at it. One of the three or four may be right, but you'll never know which one. But you know, we had for a little while we were having. You know, like maybe a couple of weeks worth of a feud between the Dinamitas and the Panthers, and it's like the third fall seemed to inevitably involve Blue Panther pinning Mascara or Mascara pinning Panther or submitting or whatever. But it's like that was how the third fall was ending. When it's like the third fall should be putting over 
you know, Kachoro or Sansun or, you know, any of the other ones mm-hmm. because they're the ones that need to keep moving, be, be moved up the card. You know, you know, Panth- you know, Panthers, Panth- you know, Panther taking a loss is if Panther losing to Sansun is not going to hurt P- Blue Panther at all. You know, no, I think Blue Panther is like Casas in that there is no loss that can hurt him. It was funny. He's just he's a, just just a legend in the fans' eyes. But there's another set of you know young guy feuds, and in this particular issue, which I hope people will run out and get, is a focus on the, the Tiger and Puma, Casas's kids, who I would love to see. I'm still waiting for their their next step up the ladder and, and they would be a great, it would be great to have, you know, Negro or Felino if we could get the good Felino and Tiger and Puma against the three Panthers or even against the Dinamita. I was going to say, how many years have, have people been predicting that like the, 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 the... I was told my, my best source told me in two, 2015 that they were getting they were getting the bump up to the semifinals, and it hasn't happened yet. And it's funny because it looked like last year we were talking about that couple minutes ago that they were going to be inserted into Casas's feud with Volador, and that looked like like their venue to move up the card, and then suddenly they stopped being booked on the main shows for a while, and I think. I think somebody, it might have been Rob, say recently, you know, that Puma and Tiger, like, haven't been wrestling on Fridays for, like, weeks at a time. It's like, you know, they're always on, like, Monday or Tuesday. But, like, they had been... That's true. And and admittedly, sometimes they're, you know, like, one of them's actually doing commentary Friday night instead of wrestling... I, and it's funny that you say that, because I've almost got the feeling that they're, they're to the point of saying goodbye to some of their more veteran announcers and they're interviewing the, just the concept of having the, not necessarily tiger doing it every week, of course, but the concept of having a wrestler or a, a heel commentator, which of course, Paco since, since um, the, the, the old, old days of telephys. was very much opposed to heel commentators on TV. It's funny though, but if you have, not your sort of stereotypical heel commentator, but if no, you know, but if they between use, Tiger and Amapola, they're the two best color commentators in North America. Well, what I was about to say is, admittedly, I can't, I don't know what he's saying, but you know, now they're starting to use Hechicero as a commentator, and it's like that seems like, other than the fact that he talks so fast, that you know, yeah, you've right. got like your. You know, he certainly, you know, looks like he's being groomed for the, like, the the technical Rudo. You know, like, he's sort of following, like, Panther's footsteps. Uh-huh. You know, that to me, that's a great guy to have on your commentary because, you know, because he's a maestro. So people know that when he's doing commentary, he knows what he's talking about. But I uh, agree. However, he doesn't have the family tree that some of these others have. And as we alluded to from the very start in CMLL, boy, it's a very important thing to your career to have. It, it's tough. You, there are very few. There's the Valiente of the world. There's the, uh, the, the Hechicero. But 
I mean, the people that come in without a power base or without a family base and just work their way to the top in CMLL, there are just so many Sangre Imperials and Pierre Roth fathers and et cetera, et cetera. So much detritus to get through, even if you've got all the talent. You have to be as good as Hechicero, in other words, to make, to make it. Well, that would lead me to somebody else because I don't know this answer, but is is Cavernario related to anybody? Or is he another guy he who's got, got... He's got a... No, he does have a family, and all of them are, are crappy Guadalajara wrestlers. He's got, like, three three brothers that wrestle in Guadalajara, and none of them did any good. But his, there was a time, about 2013, 2014, where Apollo Dantes was sending um, Metallic, Metallic Blanco, Mascara Dorada, Cavernario. He had gotten the reputation, uh, Apollo Dantes, that he couldn't promote... He couldn't draw fans, but he could train wrestlers. He could through whatever school they had in Guadalajara, and I think Tonica was helping. But he was training just excellent wrestler after excellent wrestler after excellent wrestler was coming into Guadalajara. You know, um, Dragon Lee and Mystico came out of Guadalajara. It's like the, the, there was a time there where they were willing to look at whoever Apollo Dantes was recommending for his skill. And at that particular time, Car- uh, Barbara Cavernario was he, he gave him a recommend a very strong recommendation. They brought him down for like one Sunday show and then they took him. They took him and it was the uh the Busca de Un Idolo show where he was scheduled to get to the semifinals and I don't think he was gonna win, but they changed their mind midstream because the fans just totally overwhelmingly started backing backing him. He became he became the star rather than the best, you know the, the idol that they were looking for. Well, it's funny that you mention that because um, this is an idea I've been toying with for a while, but Rob brought it up to me recently. I think it's something that we may be doing, but we may be doing a sort of retro review of that Busca Dianilo tournament on the website and maybe on the podcast too, because I think we just passed, I think, Cubs said the other day, I think we passed like the three-year anniversary not that long ago, and mm-hmm. I think I think Rob said something like, this is the best tournament that CML has like ever done, or at least, you know, in modern memory, and if the if the premise of Busca Dianilo is to make stars, there's now at least half the people that were in that have become, you know, either... May either you know upper card guys or certain certainly solid. I mean, you've had you know the caveman Hechicero, um, Kachoro, who is now the Panther, and Soberano Junior. and Dragon Lee. Those are all mm-hmm. you know upper middle you know mid card and up guys and. You know, I have belief that Star Jr. will be joining them in two or three years. He just doesn't have the power base once again, so he's got to work his way up. But it's funny that, you know, that was just – that was such a weird conglomeration of, you know, everything sort of being done correctly, which, you know, CML doesn't do very often. You know, a lot of times it's one step forward and three steps back with them. And – you know that that tournament was just like all the stars aligning correctly for once. 
It was, but I got to give them some credit because they, if you remember the seeding battle royal they had for the 16 guys to go into the tournament, and there were bigger names and there were people with more power bases or more family bases that were among the 16 wrestlers that they chose the eight out of, and they chose two or three of them just to you know, be the guys that came in seventh or eighth. So we throw those out. But everybody else, they had a pretty good idea in their training gym who was going to be, who was going to be. Um, worth pushing and who wasn't. So I got to give him some credit for that. But, you know, then again, you look at somebody like Sangre Chicana's son in CML now and you go, really, really? He's been to, he's been in the CML training gym and they, they can't make him any better than that. So sometimes you do get, you know, these family connections and, and CMLL is a very nepotistic company. They will give you a chance. And you just look at it as a fan. You look at the people that they're given a chance, and you just cringe. Well, I, you know, you brought them up earlier, but you know, again, it's like you wonder how can Canelo Casas be as poor as he is, given how long he's been there and his bloodlines. It's just like, yeah, and and he could presumably he, he yeah. no, go ahead. I was going to say, he'll presumably be given, you know, an infinite amount of chances and continue to be booked because he's Canelo Casas. And, of course, the funny thing is, and I don't remember who told me this, but apparently Canelo Casas is actually a great costumer. I believe somebody told me that he mm-hmm. made, he made Hech- when Hechicero changed his look from after Ambuscadinillo to swerve the look that he has now, that you know Casas was the one that made his ma- you know his has been making his masks, and this it's like, you know, do that you know you're apparently good at this, do this and you're still in the business, but you know, you're still in the show business. What strikes me as funny is that for him and for uh, Danny Casas and some of the others is that they probably went through the very – they probably had Felino and Negro Casas training them, and these are the same people that can turn out, you know, Tiger and Puma. They can train Tiger and Puma to be world-class, top-of-the-line wrestlers from, from anybody in any country, and how can they do so well with some family members and so poorly with other family members? Just, you know, it's, it's a strange thing. But I mean, if you look at—I mean, you look at the history of real sports. You know, some generation, second generation, third generation guys are great. You know, some of them aren't. It's you know, it's genetics plus environment plus drive plus yeah. whatever. I guess going yeah, going back to the to the to the issue too of the of the six Brazo kids that were kids, the original generation of Brazos, sons of Shady Cruz. Three were two were world class and one was passable, El Brazo, and the other three stuck. I shouldn't I shouldn't say that. One of them died early. Okay, the other two stuck. One of them died very young. But yeah, it did. It, I guess I guess your your point is was well taken. But uh, and something I do I do want to go back on while we're talking about this. Um, at the show when Felino and Puma were at the Breaking the Barrier show. Like which is covered in the magazine, which is in the well. I mean, it de- I mean, the match isn't covered because it, the magazine debuted at the show. 
But yeah, yeah. but yeah, we were lucky to get good Felino that day. And you know, from what I understand, you know, he had a great time and was like very moved by you know how appreciative everybody was. And you know, they threw money and and all. I mean, I was sort of disappointed that that Felino did not come out to sort of mingle. But you know, I can understand. You know, he's old school, so he probably didn't want to. Plus, you've got Puma there, and Puma speaks English, so he might as well just send Puma out. But yeah, so I I believe that's archived on the Powerbomb TV. So all the matches from that show are archived if people want to go back and see because it was a really it was a really good match. I mean, they wrestled uh, Guerrero Maya and Skyda, and you know from all the digging that I did and some of the other folks did, that was apparently, as far as we know, like only the second time Felino and Skyda had wrestled. There's like only Which one. Is, that's a, a stunning, for those who follow Lucha as close as I do, that's a stunning statistic. Well, I mean, it's entirely possible that it's not accurate, but docu- I mean, for things that are documented, because... You know, Lord knows how many Lucha shows there are everywhere and for, you know, how long, especially guys that have been around as long as those two. But, you know, going by what was in Cubs' database, they had only wrestled one time on opposite sides of a tag team like a while ago. But, yeah, that seems strange that, you know, that that, that, that they hadn't wrestled more often. But that was... That was true. Um, I know we were talking about uh, other stuff in the magazine, and Matt may or may not be able to do the pod in a separate section after we're done. But uh, you wanted to talk about Matt's article about Gino. Well, first off, I highly recommend the article. It is an excellent. It's an excellent piece. It covers a part of Gino's career that I am less familiar with. That is the part prior to his debut in world-class championship wrestling, which I basically got to see where, where at the time when Gino joined, joined up with uh, world-class, I was living in – it was just before I moved to Chicago, and they had um, cable TV in Chicago that showed – every wrestling promotion that they could get their hands on tapes of anything and world-class was one of them. And Gino was, let's just say, if you were to take um, a poll of people my age or people who've been around for the, and saw the 60s, 70s and 80s and just limit it to that time frame, and take a poll of the, the, greatest talents who died young or the what could have been you know these would have been there were stars who could have been you know gigantic huge and unbelievable i'm not sure gino wouldn't be first or second on that list he was an amazing 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 talent from all from everything in the ring now granted he only had one personality so i mean the, the ringside personality he had I, I knew people that it just rubbed them the wrong way, and they just they never really got into him very much. But most everybody thought he was the bomb as a heel. It's funny that I think, you know, people love playing the sort of what if game, and 
I think sort of the most logical thing that people sort of extrapolate is, you know, Gino and Chris were supposed to go to Crockett when when he died. And it's certainly easy to see that Gino would have been a horseman. It's like he almost it's almost like he would have been a better version of Tully. I mean, given how long they were partners. It's like you could easily see Gino being in that Tully role. That was w- one great tag team, too. Uh, Matt refers to several uh, uh, matches with dates, uh, and and I believe, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe most, if not all of them, that he lists in the article are available s- somewhere online. I think the... I or think, through NWA on demand. I mean, well, there's there there there's tapes in existence of them. Well, yes, yeah, certainly the bulk of the research the Houston, that Matt the did Bosch is stuff. from is from the the Bosch stuff that's on the NWA site, and you know we don't necessarily know how much longer that's going to be available. So if people, well, yeah. you know, if you know, there's certainly a lot of streaming servers, and of course we were talking about Powerbomb TV too. You know, if you're a lapsed fan, you know, certainly, you know, and you don't watch the current product, I would argue that your nine ninety nine a month would be better served watching the NWA site than giving your money to Vince. While Vince has a ton of more stuff, it's also, also I mean, a lot of the stuff that you can see from on the network, you can get on YouTube or on Daily Motion or what have you, whereas a lot of that mm-hmm. NWA stuff is not has not been sort of filtered back out, you know, onto YouTube or stuff like that. And plus, you know, the NWA stuff may be going away soon, depending on that the Corgan sale. So you know, get it while you can, because there's just a ton of buried treasures on that Houston site. And it's not just the stuff that, you know, Matt was talking about. There's, I forget, there's, there's some match from the seven. There's like a, is it race and funk or race and Wahoo or funk and Wahoo that, you know, people were saying now that we've seen it, it may have been like the best match from like, like 1977 or 1978, they're like that's better than anything else that we have previously seen on film. But there's there's that kind of level of quality that you can get there. So I would yeah, if if people read Matt's article and want more, I would definitely recommend getting the. And I would thing. I would add something that is an underlying current of Matt's article in that that is that a lot of the stuff that Gino did was they had Grand Marcus there, they had Jose Lothario there, they had Mil Moscas there. If you are a Lucha fan, you will also see stuff you can't see anywhere else. Moscas in his prime, Grand Marcus in his prime, why Lothario was was the, the number one Mexican baby face in Texas, even though all the Mexican stars came up there. He was only Moscas could draw at the level that Lothario could, and that's why. And as a Lucha fan... Um, both the article refers to several matches and then just the tapes that exist or the, the NWA on demand stuff that exists will be a gold mine of history. If you're interested in Lucia history and how big the uh, Mexican wrestlers got over to an audience that was part, part Hispanic and part, part Anglo in, in, in um, Southeast Texas. 
Yeah, it's funny because before a lot of this Shushin stuff came out, I mean, my main exposure to Lothario had been, you know, that stuff, the stuff that he did in World Class when, you know, he was already probably past his yeah, past oh, yeah. prime. Yeah, beat up. And and it's funny to sort of to sort of go off on a tangent that like now in retrospect, seeing like these these weird occasional appearances by luchadors in world class when you know it's like knowing what I know now it just seems it just it's just weird you know like like Paraguayo just out of nowhere with no expectation show up on world class or or even. Or even seeing, or even seeing Fishman there. Fishman, yeah, yeah. And you're, you're, you're like, it's like knowing now what I do. I'm like, it's weird because you know, like when I was watching World Class as like a 12 or 13 year old, it was just like, oh, here are these occasional lucha guys. They're in Texas. That makes sense or whatever. But yeah, now when you sort of realize, it's like, you know, it's, you know, it's fish. You know, it's Fishman. That's weird. Being in, it you is, know, it seeing, is weird. I mean, they were selling. They were selling out. They didn't have any ability to draw extra Mexican fans to the Sportatorium as it was. So having them on TV, unless they were running them in house shows, and I don't think they were really running them in house shows, it did strike me. It strikes me more odd now than it did when I watched it, and I thought it was odd when I was watching it. But yeah, I would. I mean, they could have spent that time building up the Simpson brothers. Oh wait, they did that already. But there, there are great – the biggest takeaway I took, speaking of, of Lucha families, the biggest takeaway I got from Matt's article is the elegance and style of the tag team that was Tully and Gino. The article as a whole reviews Gino's career, but I, I think the conclusion that, that, that Matt is getting to is, is that for the time period he's covering, the, the top-of-the-line stuff – is the matches where Tully and Gino are a tag team. And it's a it's almost the two peas in a pod tag team at that point in his career. Tully wasn't as bald and balding and and little early onset gray as he w- would be by the, the mid eighties and later eighties and stuff like that. And I know people like Arn Anderson and Tully is arguably the greatest tag team of all time, but certainly up there. But you look at Tully and Gino and what they were able to do in their youth, and boy, you want to talk about a what might have been. That could have been the, the, tag, the tag team of all time. Well, it's also interesting if you think about at the time, you know, this is probably, you know, like in 81, 82 or whatever, that certainly Southwest was at, if you rank the promotion, Southwest is usually in the bottom third of territories. But you realize they probably, people were probably getting to see Gino and Tully versus Ricky Morton and Ken Lucas. And I'm, I mean, my history may be off, but those two, those were certainly two teams in Southwest in that era. And you realize That's those correct. are probably, you know, those are, you know, two sort of like now hidden gem tag teams because you know you have to be a sort of serious historian to know about you know morton and ken lucas and then when you learn you know when morton himself says that ken lucas is the guy that taught him how to sell then you know those if those matches did happen they they probably were great 
Well, I believe they did happen. I believe there's a couple of, of, of dates available for for um, in 82, I think. And it's interesting that the Southwest had uh, the USA time slot before before Vince took it away. Or it might actually be accurate. If I if my him, memory is correct, Southwest lost it. My Vince memory didn't take it away. Southwest lost it because they had too much blood in their matches, and USA was just just freaking out over bloody Tully Blanchard week after week after week. Because once Gino left, Joe Hernandez, Tully's dad, the promoter, went to just hardcore blood stuff for for his to get his son over as the, the comeback babyface. The anecdote that I always remember is that the thing that like the the straw that broke the camel's back for USA was when Scott Casey dumped manure on Bobby Jaggers or or vice I versa. I do I do yes, yes. Oh yeah, I think that is factually correct. I think that was the straw that broke the camel's back, yes. So yeah, so if you I just think, think they were they were on warning, probation or warning, whatever before that but it was an awful territory just for five seconds digression they had san antonio to el paso to lubbock and down to corpus christi if anybody knows their geography that's giant stretches of driving between matches i mean giant stretches of and the wrestlers weren't paid very much as it was and stuff and it's like for the tv exposure is what they were trying to to earn they weren't earning much money and it's like Although, oh, that's a killer, killer territory to actually have to work. What's interesting, speaking of of very poor uh, territories at the end of the territory era, somebody has just put up a bunch of the Bruisers TV from Indianapolis. It's like, boy, which you may have seen when you were in Chicago. I was, I did, yes. But I'm watching some he, of this. He had the he had the twelve o'clock on Sunday. Time slot, which was a horrid, the only bad time slot. But it was just. But I was watching because yeah. I mean, there are there are names I know from like that time period, and there there's like guys, and I'm a hardcore nerd, and they're like guys that I don't. I sent I sent a a tweet to to Scott Bowden about this, and I was like, I said I'm watching this Bruiser stuff. I think maybe for the first time. And it may be the first time I ever saw the King Gary Lawler. Because at first I had to do a double shot. I was like, it looks like Lawler, and he's dressed like uh-huh. Lawler. I'm yeah. like, no, that's not real. Because realistically, it's Indianapolis. That would not be that far for like Lawler to drive up to do like a TV shot or something. No, no. I mean, especially since Louisville was already in their territory. So Louisville and Indianapolis, not that far. It's not no, as far I, as San Antonio to El Paso, for example. I would say, trust me, as somebody who lived in Bloomington, you know, it's. I think it was, I think for us, it used to be like an hour to Indianapolis and I think an hour and a half. Well, an hour and a half to Evansville, so you figure, you know, two hours to Louisville maybe, something like that. Yeah, yeah. But the funny thing, the but the one interesting thing I was watching this is there was a tape from, I think it was like 88, 89 maybe or something like that, maybe even earlier, but... Yeah, the WWA World Champion at that point was young babyface Scott Recksteiner, as Scott Recksteiner, and I was like, "Well, this is at least now interesting historically." So even yeah, though it yeah. was it was a horrible TV show, 
I was like, well, this is at least, you know, has got some historical value to it. Oh, and it was uh, there were some horrible matches. Whenever Bobo Brazil would come through town, and you had Bobo against um, the Bruiser, or he would bring down Cheek every so often. This is the old Cheek, the old, old, old Cheek. It was almost immobile in addition to all the fire and all the, the flash paper and all that stuff. See, there were some I, matches there that were hard to believe. See, I don't know if by the time that I, by the time I got to Indiana, I think. I don't know if that promotion was even still around, because I certainly, mean, we certainly never, I mean, it, we would probably would have driven to Indianapolis to see, you know, I think we may, I mean, I know we went to WrestleMania when it was in Indianapolis, but like, you know, I don't remember anyone ever talking about like local wrestling in Indianapolis by the time I got there, so that company may have been folded or they weren't in Indianapolis anymore, because I think... I think WWA may have moved their moved from Indianapolis to somewhere else by then, like maybe in Ohio, I think. So we we, we certainly never saw any indie wrestling in. I don't even. It's funny. I don't even remember indie wrestling or them ever doing spot shows in Bloomington while I was there that I remember. Which is funny because you would have thought. They, well, I imagine certainly if I was there in the Attitude Era, I'm sure they probably would have run... Nitro or Raw probably would have come like to Assembly Hall, I would have oh, thought, yeah. by then. But I don't yeah. But I don't remember any of that stuff happening while I lived there. Oh, yeah. They like to run the Indianapolis-Fort Wayne back-to-back Monday, Mondays and, 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 TV, and their TV tapings, Mondays and Tuesdays. Um. In, in the during the 80s and even into the early 90s, although I think later on they switched to away from Indianapolis and did like Fort Wayne, Dayton, Ohio as their you know one day trip to the next to the next town. But it was a it was it was an amazing ability to have really anti- antiquated TV with antiquated production values and antiquated wrestlers. The only thing they had going for them was the same thing that AWA had. Is that they had a cage match. Every single promotional interview was the guy standing behind a cage, behind a steel fence, which was unintentionally hilarious through its indie TV. We had at 12:30 after the indie uh, Indianapolis program was over uh, on a different cable access channel. We had Sammy DeSero's Chicago Wrestling. Um, which was the lowest independent wrestling show to have TV that I ever saw. And yet I actually learned more about wrestling from Sammy and his crew than anybody else. They, they were very kind. And a lot of the wrestlers took time to explain stuff to me back in the 80s. They were so very soft back. But the, the TV from, from the cable access channel and the TV that the Bruiser put out were remarkably similar similar quality. Were you... Were you still living in Chicago when Windy City was around, or had you moved by then? Yeah, yeah, no, that was it. That was that was Sammy's promotion. Oh, okay. No, Windy City. Windy City was. It also had a couple of guys there that I thought were going to be just giant stars somewhere, and they weren't. So, what can you do? But I have very fond memories of the '80s because you got to see so much stuff. I got to see Arena Mexico. I got to see uh, um, 
I didn't get to see the Fort Worth show, but I got to see the World Class Sportatorium show. I got to see two UWF shows that Tim Ross was broadcasting. Well, was the host for. If people and of have, course all the WWE shows and the NWA shows. Well, if people have listened to some of the episodes of the pod when Zipper Vivi's been on, we've talked about the glut of wrestling that we got on TV here. I mean, he was closer to DC, but like, you know, where I am, because we had a rotor on our antenna, that we got like Baltimore TV and Philadelphia TV. We could pick up some stations in Jersey and we could pick up like uh like central pennsylvania so like the first time that we watched world class was on channel 43 in york which was on like the cbn station so you're watching you're not watching this on cable you're watching this over the air antenna yes yeah because i didn't get we did not get cable until the summer of 1988 which is when as i had predicted years earlier the summer before I went to college is when we got cable. <laughs> so well, we had it, yeah, we had it in Chicago from from '83 back when things were just just you know the the territory business was dead. We didn't know it; it was walking dead back then. But yeah, but so like was, there was still promotions at, at every corner putting putting their TV product available up on satellites. Yeah, so here we could watch on on over the air TV. We could watch. Both WWF shows, both Crockett shows, um, pro, the AWA slash Pro Wrestling USA, and World Class. And then, so that was like 84, 85. And then I think in 85, 86 is when, we, is when Mid-South finally got syndicated here. So we added that. And I don't know if... And then, oh, and we could... Depending on when we could pick it up on the aerial, we could get the Savoldi promotion from Savoldi promotion from Jersey. Uh huh. But you couldn't get Ted Turner's Channel 17. That was only on cable, right? Right. But I mean, but we got worldwide and Mid Atlantic. So, but okay. but see, but my friends had actually. But you lived... didn't see the the six the six oh five p.m. Saturday, um, you know, main main well, show, main taping of the week. I couldn't at my house, but if I went to my friend's house that actually lived in town, they yeah. see they had cable, but because, I mean we're talking well we're already in the country, so but like we live out of the town, in the country country. So the way I understand it is, because of the way the phone lines and the electric lines went. Like even though our house is like very next to a major, a major road, the way the wiring went, we would have been like one of the last people to get it because it wouldn't have come straight down the road. It would have looped around all the way through the back roads and then up our road to where we are. But you know, so therefore, nineteen the difference between nineteen eighty three and nineteen eighty eight cable TV. Right. And then it's funny, and then I went to college, and I lived in one of two dorms on campus that had cable. And <laughs> and what's great about that is um, our cable had, F, had FNN score, 
which meant I got Todd Donahoe. Well, it means we got to watch Memphis on Saturdays. Yes. So that was like so that was like the first time I got to see Memphis was in 19 you know apart cuz I don't think I don't think I was ta- I wasn't tape trading you know until I went to well I didn't I didn't really start tape trading until like I became an observer subscriber other than you know ordering tapes out of PWI you know cuz we cuz we had bought you know like the the Crockett tapes so where you where you lived on campus had cable? Yes. Is the rumor true that where you where you went every single channel broadcast nothing but college basketball games? Might as well. But uh, well, it's well. That's what I thought. Well, it's because <laughs> it was true at North Carolina where I went too. Well, because of where I lived on camp, I lived like in the northern part of the campus in. What it turns out, I did not realize at when I lived when I when I came there that we were one of the, our quad was one of the ones where the athletes lived because we were only three or four blocks away from the stadium and the arena. Uh-huh. So I lived in what was the the quote unquote international learning center building so like we had we had lots of foreign students in our building but in the so there were like five buildings in our quad and like two the one next to ours which i did not know at the time was where like a lot of the football players lived so i inadvertently picked like one of the better quads because we had cable and air conditioning, which was not true of every quad on campus in nineteen in nineteen eighty-eight. And I very quickly learned that even though it was the Midwest, it got pretty darn hot in the summer. So no, I lived in I lived in one of the the eighteen hundreds dorms in in at Chapel Hill in the seventies, and there was heat, but there was not air conditioning. There was no air conditioning in our dorm anywhere. So there the is more, an old historic Horace historic building, and they couldn't. But when, when you lived there, that you know the Keith Smart jumper and the national championship, and you you must have been living in in like if if you had basketball players close by, you must have had every possible like like um, well, amenity. Well, yeah, amenity I did not. Yeah, by. I I didn't realize it. Yeah, I didn't realize it at the time. But yeah, I ended up being very lucky that you know we had athletes in our quad so yeah and our quad was like i think one of two on campus where in the basement of one of the buildings they actually had like a little mini grocery store like they're all there's all this stuff that i took for granted yeah, that yeah, i didn't I realize I know what you mean. yeah i didn't realize until later yeah unfortunately i i went the year after key smart so i was actually i was there in a period where we were good but not great and as i because like i had technically graduated but was still on campus because i was working at the newspaper like that was the year that we went to the final four and i because i predicted we i predicted we wouldn't win while i was there even though like as a like we won the fresh we won the big 10 as we won the big 10 when i was a freshman but we had been we had been picked seventh 
preseason. So, like, we were good that year, and then, I mean, you know, it was that era. We were good but not great. And then, you know, there's the year that we probably were, quote-unquote, supposed to win, the year that we were number one most of the year. And then, you know, like, one of our guys got hurt in April. So we went, or not April, in February. And, you know, so we went into the tournament hurt, and we went to the final eight, but we got beat. That was the that was the year your that was the that was the Chris Weber I quit year. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, which I'm sure you well, you more know as a year that your alma mater won. What? Yes. The well, the question I have is when I was in college in the '70s, people, a lot of people in my dorm and later in my fraternity, followed Saturday Night Wrestling on TV. They knew who everybody knew who Ric Flair was. This is you know seventy six through through seventy nine, seventy nine, early eighty, in North Carolina. People watch. I mean, people who are in college um, were watching that show re- religiously before, not all the way, not all, all the way through. I mean, sometimes it was, um, you know, you know, there was a midnight movie playing that they wanted to go see or whatever, but. It was amazingly popular on campus back then, and I always thought it was very strange that they never, ever, 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 ever ran a show, a wrestling show, in Chapel Hill or Durham. They only ran it in Raleigh while I was there, because I could see they had they had an audience that, for the very occasional show, would have sold out the 10,000-seat basketball arena at the time. And I don't know if you, when you were in college, if you ran across, you know, in while you were watching wrestling on the TV in the common room if there was like 50 other people watching it with you. No, it was sort of like, it was maybe, because this would have been sort of the past, sort of, I guess, sort of like the tail end of Hulkamania. Well, I mean, so, you, were, you, but you, were there, you were there the big NBC show where Miss Elizabeth and, you know, the yeah. first Friday night, the big angle show. I don't, about the biggest thing that I remember sports-wise, not related to IU, being watched in the in the lounge was I remember everyone being in there the night that Douglas beat Tyson. That's like the one I remember. But like it seemed like wrestling was sort of so unpopular at that point. It's like we either watched it in our rooms. We like usually if we had it on in in the lounge, there would be enough people who wanted it changed to watch something else. So. Because I remember we watched, I sort of really just remember, I mean, we watched Memphis while it was on, and we watched the NWA, but I don't remember really a lot of watching Vince's stuff there, and then by like my second year, or third year, was when I started getting Japanese stuff. And then people would come to our room. Like, if we would put in like, tapes of like, Liger, or like uh-huh. the New Japan stuff, people would flock to that because then it became, you know, this isn't you know two three hundred pound American guys you know doing whatever. These are like flashy guys doing all this weird crazy stuff that people had never seen before. Yeah, so yeah, if we had people who like made fun of wrestling, we would like because I remember at the time you know there was that you know that Liger feud with with Sano that won. Like the 
match of the year in the Observer. It's like we would yeah, show them, yes, yeah, we would show them that like that three match series, and they'd be blown away, and they'd be like, well, you know, you know regular stuff, stupid. This stuff's actually, you know, cool or interesting or whatever. And they're like, oh, we understand why you would want to watch this. This is different. So. Yeah, that is that is that's a, a great memory, a great memory, and bringing back memories. The the, the the one that people that riveted people the most, I think, while I was in college, was the night that uh, they showed the tape of Valentine breaking Wahoo McDaniel's leg, and everybody in the room except maybe two or three of us bought it as like he really broke his leg. It was a. Uh, probably 77 or 78 and stuff like that. And it was a, whatever was going on had the, the, the TV lounge was pretty full. And of course we didn't have cable back then. So, and there were no other college basketball games on to interrupt. Well, it was too late at night. What I was going to ask is amazingly Saturday night Live was just off, off topic. Saturday night Live was never popular in my college. I don't recall anybody, you know, this was, it started in 75, I think, and I was there 76, 80. I don't recall anybody watching, and yet I can vividly recall people watching wrestling Saturday night after Saturday night after Saturday night. Well, the the thing people always say about the Carolinas is, like, the reason that Crockett was so huge is because there were no pro sports teams. And so I've heard, I, I, I have heard that. You know, between that and, I mean, you've got, like, the college, I mean, the college basketball was, like, the biggest sport in Carolina because there wasn't anything else. And because of more, that, that you can make more of an argument for. Wrestling was different. Wrestling was just, it's part of culture. Right. Let's, I mean, I think nowadays, like, when you hear people, when people tell stories of the territory era in certain places, and I think people just easily dismiss it as exaggeration. But, you know, it was true that in certain places, like that famous story where, like, the Rock and Roll Express shut down the highway because so many people were going to, like, that's a spot show in Carolina that they were going to. They couldn't, they almost didn't get to the arena. I'm like, those things really happened, but they're so fanciful that people don't believe them. And people would... I think would be amazed at the crowds they drew. I mean, the greens, the Greensboro Coliseum crowds were as large then, or the, the size then that WWE doesn't even draw today. But I have a question for you going back to our, our magazine and families and stuff like that. Something Matt doesn't address in his article on Gino. What is the current level of knowledge as to whether or not Gino is actually the son, the illegitimate son of Paul Bosch, as opposed to the son of, um, um, an undercard Mexican wrestler by the name of Luis Hernandez, who had a minor—not a minor career, but not a major career either—in Texas. As far as I've always just been under the impression that it really was Bosch, but I don't know that for a fact, and I don't know sort of what the evidence is like one way or the other. That it seems like that that story has been perpetuated so long. That what, there got must... me, 
what got me about it was is that Luis is a brown-skinned Mexican wrestler, and I've seen Gino live once, and he is much more white-skinned. And of course, Paul Bosch was very was ridiculously pale. He was an inside, he, like he never went out in the sun for just his own personal reasons and stuff like that. But you would look at Luis and say, and then you would look at Gino and say, boy, that doesn't look like genetics following from one person to another. I don't, you know, I don't know. It's like, I don't, the, I've never heard either of them talk about it, but it's like, I wonder if anybody has ever asked either of the Pritchards about it, because it seemed to me like nowadays, like, especially now that Scott Williams passed away, it seemed like, like Bruce or Dr. Tom would be like, if I had to ask anybody that question to get an answer, like those are two, those are probably like the two people I would want to hear it from. But I don't know one way or the other. But I don't, yeah, but I don't know that we'll ever actually really know. They may not even really know. They may just have heard the same stories we have and just, they have an opinion one way or the other, but they don't actually know which which it is. Yeah, I don't. I mean, theoretically, theoretically, birth records and death records in Texas are public information. And a genealogy site, the LDS Church, or whatever, if it wanted to find out and really, really wanted to spend the time and effort to track through every county in Texas until they found found the birth record. So <laughs> I suppose there's an answer to be had somewhere, but it would be unlikely that anyone would ever put forth the effort to find it at this point. But well, you know, poor, G- poor Gino, I, I heard more stories about how he died than how he, how he was born. You know, it's funny is when you say it like that, it makes me found like if one person would actually do that, it would be Bix. <laughs> like, if you, <laughs> well, like, it could be done. It can be done. I mean, there are public, it's, 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 a, it's true, it's public records. But you know, if you were to if you were to tell me that there is like one one person in sort of quote unquote wrestling media, that would that would put forth the effort to to do that. Uh-huh. I would I, Bix would be my number one candidate. I mean, so, the death record. I mean, we know where he died, and we know where he was he was when he died. So all you have to know in Texas is, is what county he was in. And then if you physically go there and sign a form and pay a fee, they will give you anybody's death certificate. Mm-hmm. And presumably on the death certificate, it would list – somebody would have had to have list, listed um, various vital statistics that then you could go and, oh, he was born in 19 – you know, whatever it was, 87 minus 29, 50. He was born in 58 in X County, Texas. You go to that county and get the birth record. Mm-hmm. But that's anyway. That's that's not what people are paying their good money for the podcast for. They want to know more about the issue. Well, like I said, we've got your art, or uh, we've got your article. We got Matt's article. We've got uh, me doing some reviews that people, if uh, people are curious about some of the reviews, I believe many, if not all of them, you can find on the Winter Palace website in the Lucha Look In section. It was. Uh, those are all matches that are available to be purchased from Black Terry Jr., who also supplied all of the pictures in this issue, except, of course, from the picture of Puma holding the issue. That I got at the show from Puma himself. Um, yeah, he's, and, one cool, he's one cool cat. 
Yes. I, you know, he, you know, he was very nice to talk to. Guerrero Mai was very nice to talk to through an interpreter. And the other cool thing about that show is I finally got to meet uh, Randy and Cecilia in person because they were there as sort of working as translators with the, the Lucha guy. So it was cool to finally meet them. And I got finally got to try this famous Old Forge pizza that I had heard the guys talking about so much. That was cool. Um, yeah, so the issue is uh, 5 bucks in print or $3 for a digital PDF. You can go to the website for more information. You can send us an email at odessastepsmagazine at gmail.com or odessastepsmag on Twitter or Winter Palace Pod on Twitter. Um, and, so, what if, and I noticed that this is issue number six. What if I want to take a look at the other five? Which well, I might because I seem to have lost one of my copies. Well, it, there are personally given to me, but I, I seem to have misplaced it. There are there are numerous, numerous, numerous copies of issues one and four, uh, two and three, <laughs> two and three, not too much. Well, because well, issue one was all the way back in two thousand. Yeah. Uh, that was when I printed. Uh, I thought I had distribution for the magazine, and I didn't. So I printed to what I thought I might need instead of what reality turned out to be. Four is similar in that way. Uh, two and so three. Are you, still, are you still eating ramen for lunch and dinner? <laughs> no, but I I have I have at least a box of one and a box of four. Uh, two okay. and two and three. Uh, I have my copies left of three. I don't even know if I have a copy of two anymore. Um, do you have the electronic files? Um, do you want to know how long ago these issues were made, Steve? Okay, that's the answer to that question. Yes. No, 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 no. no. It's funnier than that. No. Uh, my heart, my my uh, copies of those issues are on zip drives. Oh. <laughs> so I would it have is. to, so I would have to, I believe I still have my zip drive player somewhere or, you know, whatever you want to call it. So uh-huh. uh, I believe I could theoretically make more if I ever actually found the discs and found my drive and that kind of stuff. But there has not been, a, I mean, it's something I'd like to do eventually. To, if nothing else, put them on the website, but it has not been the hugest of priorities. So it's it's a goal to eventually get it done, but not anytime soon. But yeah, well, so I have been considered myself very fortunate to have written for a couple of those earlier issues, and I look forward to hopefully, if 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 permitted, and if if you if you need it, to be able to write in a future issue as well. You always have an open door. I can certainly say. That. Well, and issue, and if people, if people want to know how, uh, if people are wrestling fans want to know how funny uh, things change over time. Issue one, way back in 2000, I have a big interview with Dave in there, and I believe one, one of the questions is, what exactly is the future of UFC? Because I believe this was before the Fertitas and Dana bought them. So you can just, so it's, that's, that's a really funny discussion to look at now in hindsight about 
Mm-hmm. You know, was USC? The way things I, are going, you might be having another article like that next year. Well, that's okay. How many years have we been talking about? Could this be Triple A's last year? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's that. That's a perennial question in and of itself. If, if Ultimo Guerrero has the police come and take Psycho Clown away at about um, um, one or two minutes before match time. Oh, things like that wouldn't happen in wrestling, Steve. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, if if La Mascara and if Maximo ever debut with AAA, it's going to be in that match. I don't think they will. I think AAA is going to shy away from them because they're criminals, and they're going to just go in their own direction with the wrestlers they have. But um, but if they do debut now, that would be the time and the place to do it during that match at some point. Oh, well, what's funny is one of my theories before this all happened, is, I think we've talked about this before, is I thought it was, it could very well happen that Psycho Club loses his mask there for the payoff and ends up, and ended up in CMLL because, you know, you had, you had all the other Alvarados there, plus you had his father-in-law there, so, and he, and he had no heat with the office from, from when he left. Of course, that's all changed. I can't. I can't see him going to work for CML anytime soon. Yeah, that was that. Unfortunately, that if if that was ever in their plans, it's it's way way off in the future. After this has long died down, not this year. I was gonna say, unless unless you're a you know unless you know, I don't know if this is bad enough to get you put in Paco's black book along with along with with uh, Carlos and. And maybe Wagner, you know, I don't, I don't think he's in that book yet, but he's certainly in the the next the gray book. He might be in the yes, black book. Yes, he's, he's probably in the gray book. He's not vetoed. He's not vetoed, but he's not welcome. Right. Um, so, Steve, I want to thank you again for your time. I should say, um, if people are listening for other stuff to listen to, um, you were on Fredo's podcast not that long ago. And did a very interesting discussion with him about, speaking of, about how AAA was founded since we just passed its anniversary. Um, I mean, I was reading The Observer at the time, so a lot of that stuff I knew, but there was a lot of stuff that you guys talked about that I didn't know. So I would encourage people to sign up to Fredo's Lucha World Lucha Classica podcast and listen to that, because that was, a, that was a, a fun show to listen to. Thank you. Thank you. I am. I am. Hopefully, that Lafredo will ask ask me back too. And starting with probably the, the very next Monday that comes along, certainly after after July first, I'll switch to Mondays on the Wrestling Observer Live Show. Much easier on my work schedule. Fridays is essentially going to become impossible the way my work new work new job schedule is structured. Cool. Yeah. 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 And people can listen to you on the observer show so steve thank you again for your time stay cool and we will talk to everybody next time